From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. Today, Misty Copeland talks about how she became the first African-American ballerina to be a principal dancer with the American Ballet Theater, even though there were times she was told her body wasn't right for ballet. I was told my breasts are too large, my muscles are too big, I'm too short. And she'll talk about touring with Prince. They became friends and their conversations helped change her mindset. It was always kind of, I'm alone, I'm isolated, there's no one in this company who looks like me. And he would say, well, that's incredible. You have this power. Also, actor Michael Imperioli. He stars in the second season of the HBO series The White Lotus. Imperioli is best known for another HBO series, The Sopranos. He played Christopher, the young gangster with anger and impulse control issues. What do you got to say now? This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. Terry has today's first interview. Here she is. My guest Misty Copeland became the first African-American woman to become a principal dancer with the American Ballet Theater, America's national ballet company. That was in 2015, the same year the company celebrated its 75th year. She was the only black woman in the company for the first 10 years of her career. Among the principal roles she danced was the title role of the Firebird, the Stravinsky Ballet, and the dual role of the Swan Queen and the Black Swan in Swan Lake. Her new memoir is about the pride and pressures of being a first in a world she describes as refusing to see black people as equals, capable of succeeding in traditionally, quote, European art forms. Her skin color, her body, her hair didn't conform to what ballerinas were supposed to look like. She was told many times to give up ballet and pursue modern dance instead. But she became a ballet star and a star outside of ballet. She danced in performance with Prince on his Welcome to America tour and danced on Broadway in the revival of On the Town. For her performances and for her work advocating for greater representation in ballet and other art forms, in 2015, Time magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Misty Copeland, welcome to Fresh Air and congratulations on the new memoir. Thank you so much. What was it about your body that was considered wrong for ballet? Well, you know, what's interesting is when I started ballet at 13 years old, I was told I had everything that it took to be a ballet dancer, um, physically, artistically. So, you know, that's why there's kind of uh, this interesting, uh, like, dichotomy uh, when I think about black women specifically in ballet and the language that's being used um, in telling us that we are wrong for ballet. Again, you know, I had the ideal body. Uh, when I joined American Ballet Theater, you know, of course, I went through puberty and like a lot of dancers, you know, who become professionals between the ages of 16 and 18. And my body did change. But once I became a professional, that's when people started to really see me uh, as a black woman in a company where there weren't any. <laughs> and that's when the language started to change around me, you know, fitting in. I was told I'm still to this day, I, you know, will we'll read things, you know, that I, I, I don't belong because uh, my breasts are too large, my muscles are too big, um, 
I'm too short. Uh, but these are all excuses uh, because there are so many dancers who are not of color uh, who have similar body types uh, to me that are shorter, that have larger breasts and bigger muscles. Um, so, you know, throughout the course of my professional career, it's really been about me understanding the language that's being used and and having conversations about that because that's been what's turned so many black women away from ballet is because they're told those things. You danced among the leading roles that you had was um, the role of the Swan Queen, the White Swan in Swan Lake, and the role of the Black Swan. You danced a dual role. Um, is Swan Lake maybe like the whitest of all <laughs> of all classical <laughs> ballets? Because, you know, like the swan, it, it, she's a white swan. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I'd say it's up there. You know, there's a whole category of classical uh, works uh, called the Ballet Blancs, uh, which translates to the white ballets. I didn't know um, that. And, yes, and, and Swan Lake is one of them. But um, Les Sulfides, uh, uh, Giselle, Labayadere, Swan Lake, um, all of these ballets that have uh, a second act where the, the entire corps de ballet is um, dressed in all white, white tutus or whatever it is they may be wearing. Um, and they typically are portraying a character that's otherworldly. And so they tend to have the dancers all um, powder their skin with white powder to make them look, you know, otherworldly, to make them look like they're not alive. But it doesn't really translate on brown skin. Um, you know, it's one thing just to cover the skin and, and make it uh, not shine so it doesn't look as human. Um, it's another thing to have someone paint their skin white, and that's been that's been the pattern of uh, you know experience of black women um, in these ballets, if they're even allowed to perform in those acts in those ballets. Um, but yes, you know w- what you just said. You know the fact that it's a white swan that we're portraying, and and so many black and brown women have been told that you know well she's a white swan. Like why would we put a black or brown body in that? Um, so yes, it is. It is. Um, it was quite a a big deal for me to portray that role at American Ballet Theater, or for any black woman to portray that role. But my kind of argument, I guess, has always been that you know we're playing characters. We're we're actors and actresses on stage. You know, we, these dancers who are portraying the black swan aren't black. And uh, swans come in different colors, um, and again, it's it's uh, taking on a role, and that's what that's the true beauty of art. It's telling a story. It's becoming something you're not, um, and uh, convincing people that they are um, in this world with you. Such a good point you just made that to dance the role of the black swan. You don't have to be black. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. I think the first time you danced in the American Ballet Theater's Court of Ballet was in Swan Lake. And you had to do what you just said. You not only had to use white powder, you had to use white foundation, yes. which is thicker than powder right. and more closely approximating a, a kind of paint. Yeah. What was your reaction? Can you compare your reaction to having to do that then, very early in your career, mm-hmm. and how you think about that now? Yeah. Um, it's difficult for a young person who, you know, you think about the the history and the level of American ballet theater and what that company means for ballet um, and to be this young, you know, 
I think I was 19 at the time when I performed at the Met, the Metropolitan Opera House at Lincoln Center for the first time. Um, you know, a couple of years, maybe three, four years before that, I was living in a motel with my five siblings and my single mom. <laughs> and now I'm, you know, on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera House getting this opportunity. And it's kind of this pressure. It's like, well, this is what it takes to be in this position. You're uh, you're getting this opportunity, so you have to fit in. And, you know, I, I, I think that deep down inside, you know, it was something that felt very uncomfortable for me. Um, you know, I think about my experience uh, when I first started dancing in the small studio in San Pedro, California, and my teacher, Cynthia Bradley, who was a white woman, um, but was very... Um, kind of grounded and connected to um, all of these things we're talking about with race and and ballet. And I remember her uh, letting me wear skin-colored tights in a lot of the classical roles I was performing as a young person. When you say skin color, you mean white skin color, right? No, I mean my skin color. Oh, oh, oh. Which is not really allowed. I mean, things are changing today. That's why I thought you meant white skin color. I thought right. you were trying to like cover up. <laughs> no, that's the norm. That's the norm uh, is that uh-huh. everyone wears pink tights and that's representative of white skin. So it was something I was aware of when I was 19 and came into ABT um, that I you know, would have to wear pink tights and all the classical works and, um, and then having to go on stage and and, you know, make my skin, attempt to make my skin look like the other dancers, um, you know, it chips away at you. Um, as the years went on, it just, you know, the, the the more that I'd look around, you know, and not see people who looked like me, not see other women who looked like me, and I'm painting my skin over and over, um, it was something I started to uh, talk about. You know, whether it was with my colleagues, eventually with the artistic staff and with my artistic director, Kevin McKenzie. Um, and eventually, uh, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years later, um, I would have that conversation with the wardrobe department, with hair and makeup and and um, kind of debate, you know, w- what the sole purpose of this uh, tradition is. Um, and as I was saying earlier, you know, if it's, if it's just to make us look otherworldly, then why can't I have um, brown powder <laughs> to powder my skin to take that shine away? Why am I changing the color? Um, and I did it as a principal dancer when, when approaching the last time I performed the role of Swan Lake, I did that. Um, and in other roles where I was told to paint my skin white. Um, so I, I did push back, um, but we have a long way to go still. Sure, sure. Misty Copeland speaking with Terry Gross. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc. 92% of people who have used Teladoc have seen an improvement in their mental health. Teladoc's online therapy offers access to licensed therapists right from your phone. Get help with anxiety, stress, depression, and more. Choose the right therapist for your needs with sessions wherever you're the most comfortable. Download the app or visit teladoc.com slash fresh air. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Misty Copeland, the first African-American principal ballerina with the American Ballet Theater. She has a new memoir called The Wind at My Back. As secure as you felt on stage, as at home as you felt on stage uh, as a ballerina, you grew up with a lot of insecurity, and um, sometimes without even a home, you describe your mother as having had a series of relationships with, you know, 
the wrong men. Um, there were times when you, you didn't really have a home, when your mother would leave uh, a relationship and you'd end up living in a cheap motel with your six siblings and your mother sharing a room. Five siblings. Five siblings. That's right. There's six total. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> so from the time my family and I moved to Los Angeles, California from Kansas City, Missouri when I was two years old, for the most part, there wasn't a consistent place that we were staying in, I would say, except for the time that my mother married her fourth husband, uh, that we actually had a home that we were living in. That was like the most stable our, our home environment was. I was between, I think, seven and nine years old. But it was after that divorce, so, I, I you know, nine, ten, something like that, that um, we were constantly moving from uh, people that I didn't know that were friends of my mom's. We were staying at, um, on their couches. It was literally from like week to week, month to month that we were were moving between people's homes or between motels. And so that was probably for like three years or something. It was really difficult to be in school. And I felt that I couldn't get close to anyone because I was so embarrassed about my home situation. I didn't want anyone to know what was going on, whether it was the relationships my mom was in, the abuse that was happening in the household. Um, I just kept everyone at a distance because I didn't want them to know. Um, and it was really stressful. <laughs> it was really stressful to kind of keep up this facade um, of, of happiness. Uh, and it wasn't until ballet came into my life that I started to feel that I could like be a person, <laughs> a person in the world, like I could express myself. It was it was like I'd gone 13 years of my life without truly expressing what was inside of me or feeling comfortable in my skin. And um, it was ballet and it was being in, in the studio, in the ballet studio, which felt so sacred um, it felt so uh, protective and, and the same with the, the stage. And I know it's like the opposite of what people would think um, of performing. You know, you're up there and you're so uh, exposed and um, naked. And I felt the opposite. I felt like I finally found um, this place of, of comfort um, for the first time in my life. You started dancing ballet with the Boys and Girls Club of America. And your teacher there, Cindy Bradley, really believed in you and your ability to become like a great dancer. And because at the time you were living at a motel that was like 13 miles away from school and from the Girls and Boys Club of America, she decided that you should stay at her place with her husband and young son during weekdays so you could get to both school and to your ballet classes easily because your mother told you it's 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 too much you're going to have to quit ballet which which you didn't want to do how did that change your life to be able to stay at your dance teacher's home have her attention have her be really devoted to you as her student and also become like a surrogate parent um it was so different from anything i'd ever experienced in my life you know, I was severely underdeveloped in every way. 
physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, you know, I, I there were we had enough money to survive barely. <laughs> you know, when I was living with my mother and. Um, you know, what we were eating was not priority. Uh, it was just, you know, what can we afford? Um, you know, something as basic as that. Um, when I lived at, at Cindy's house, um, I started to develop physically because I was getting nutritious food. Um, I was I was having conversations, you know, with with Cindy and with her husband, um, conversations that I'd never experienced my entire life. You know, being one of six children, there's it's hard for, you know, my mom who's working several jobs and just trying to survive, keep us off the street, you know, to have these intimate conversations with each one of us. I also just don't think it was really in her nature because of the way she was raised as well. You know, this lack of, of communication and I was forced to do that at Cindy's house, and I grew and developed immensely in the three years that I lived with them. Um, it also was the first time I was in, like, a stable environment that wasn't chaotic, you know, that, that I could, like, hear myself think. <laughs> um, it, was, it was peaceful, and, um, and I, was, I could really just focus on the training, which is why I, I moved in with them, was to be able to— um, you know, catch up on all the training that I uh, missed out on by starting at 13 years old, which is late for, you know, in ballet standards, um, because I, I would eventually go on to join American Ballet Theater with only four years of training under my belt. I can't let you go without asking you about Dancing with Prince. <laughs> um, you, you danced with him in his Welcome to America tour. And when I say dance with him, I mean, he was performing, you were dancing at the same time, kind of interpreting the music, and you danced on his piano. What did he tell you he wanted you to do and why he wanted you to do it when he first asked you to perform with him? He reached out to me. I must have been like maybe 26 um, years old, and he invited me to be in a music video of his. He just, he said that when he... he he had remade the song Crimson and Clover, and he just could envision me dancing to it. Um, so that was the first thing that I did. I, I He flew me out to L.A., and I improvised on the set. I, he, I like, went straight to the set and, and improvised this choreography that, um, he you know, he sat there watching and didn't really have much to say. Um, but we developed a beautiful friendship over the years, and he, um, you know, eventually would invite me to tour with him. Um, and then, you know, the ultimate experience, though, was, was performing on his Welcome to America tour, and um, especially the performances at Madison Square Garden, um, to see the way that he worked, um, his his devotion to his craft and his eye for, uh, you know, performance. And it was just an incredible experience. But beyond, you know, performing with him, it was the conversations we had. We talked about Raven a lot. Um, we, you know, talked about what it is to be the only. And, you know, he kind of changed my my mindset and way of thinking where, you know, it was always kind of 
I'm alone. I'm isolated. There's no one in this company who looks like me. And and he would say, well, that's incredible. <laughs> your your people are looking at you. You know how hard people have to work to be unique and different and stand out. And and you know you have this power um, that a lot of people don't have. And you know that you're surrounded by. Um, simply by the way you look or your body. And um, and I never thought of it in that way. And he just really changed the way that I looked at, you know, the power that I held um, rather than seeing it as um, a negative thing by, you know, being black in this European white art form. So what is the status of your dance career now? I am still a principal ballerina with ABT, though I have, um, you know, been off, you know, starting with the pandemic. Um, And then I had my son Jackson um, seven months ago. So I'm still making my way back to the stage um, and I'm hoping to be back on the stage with ABT um, in the fall, winter of 2023. Misty Copeland, it's just been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much, and I wish you all good things when you return to the stage. Thank you so much for having me. Misty Copeland speaking with Terry Gross. Her new memoir is called The Wind at My Back. Our next guest is actor Michael Imperioli. He's very busy these days. This year, so far, he's appearing in the HBO series The White Lotus. His first novel is being reprinted, and he's releasing new music with his band Zopa. Imperioli made his name as an actor in the influential TV series The Sopranos, playing Christopher Moltisanti, the violent gangster with impulse control issues, who's got a father figure in Tony Soprano. Not a great role model. Imperioli's been thinking a lot about The Sopranos in the last few years. In 2021, he published a book called Woke Up This Morning, The Definitive Oral History of The Sopranos, co-written with Steve Sharippa, who plays gangster Bobby Bacala on the show. The book came out of the podcast they started during COVID called Talking Sopranos, where they went back and watched the whole series all over again. Michael Imperioli published his first novel, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, in 2017, and it's being re-released this December. It's a coming-of-age novel set in 1976 New York, and one of the characters is another perhaps flawed father figure, Lou Reed. But let's start with The White Lotus, the Emmy-winning HBO series created by Mike White. In the second season, Michael Imperioli plays Dominic DeGrasso, a successful Hollywood producer with a sex addiction who's destroyed his marriage by cheating on his wife a lot. He's reluctantly gone on vacation to Sicily with his father and son to find their family roots while staying at the luxurious White Lotus hotel chain. And he secretly contracted a local sex worker to stay the week with him, which is causing him a lot of shame and guilt as he hopes to change and save his marriage. His father, Bert, played by F. Murray Abraham, flirts with any woman he comes across, and his son Albie, played by Adam DeMarco, thinks they're both sexist dinosaurs. Let's hear a scene between Albie and Dominic, where Dominic tries to defend himself. Imperioli speaks first. Hey, Albie. Yeah. Hey, um, I feel like you have this wrong, distorted impression of me. I have always supported women. I've always promoted women. I'm a feminist. I mean, I didn't marry some subservient wife. Your mother's a brilliant, amazing woman. Did you talk to her? We didn't talk about you, Dad. No, I don't want to put you in the middle. Um, You don't have to say anything to her, but if you did say something, 
I'm hoping you tell her that I'm really, really, really missing her and Kara and, and that I feel, I feel really awful. She listens to you. Nothing is going to fix this. No? You have to change, Dad. You have to stop doing what you're doing and actually change. I know that, and I have changed, and I am changing. I can change. Oh, yeah? Yes. I can be the man she wants me to be again. That's our guest, Michael Imperioli, in the second season of The White Lotus. Michael Imperioli, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. So your character, Dom, is on this trip with his father and son, which he's he's very reluctant about. And he's kind of stuck between them, both generationally, but also like in terms of his relationship to women. As I said, his father, Bird, is really lecherous. He cheated on his wife, but he says, you know, those were peccadilloes. I'd never loved them. Um, I loved my wife. But your your character also is cheating on his wife, but he feels a lot of shame. Uh, he has sex addiction and compulsion issues. His son doesn't really see a distinction between them. Can you talk about how you decided to play Dom? Dominic is wrestling with doing things he doesn't really want to do and feeling kind of propelled to do them once he gets kind of that bug in his head. And as soon as he's done with it, this, you know, wave of guilt and remorse and regret come over him all the time and he realizes he doesn't want to be doing these things. Um, probably at some point in his life earlier on, he did them without being conscious of these after effects, justifying them, um, you know, felt entitled to them, compartmentalizing them, but that kind of faded away, you know, and he, he's really seeing the effects of his action both on himself and on his psyche and on his family. This is an issue that I've thought about a lot, like how men's behavior changes over generations and uh, how much amount of change is available to you based on like the era you're living in and you're based on your generation. That seems to be playing out as well in your character. It does. It definitely does. Um, you know, Bert, who's 80 years old in the show, right? Who were his role models? You're talking about going back to early part of the 20th century, probably, and maybe earlier. So he, his role models were rooted in, you know, traditions of patriarchy and he didn't really see any, probably much diversion from that and felt that what he was doing was okay. Whether or not Bert was a sex addict, I don't know. I, you know, addiction really is something that a person has to define for themselves, at least in my opinion. Um... But Dominic's, you know, that conversation you played with him and Albie, I mean, Dominic really believes that. And there's probably evidence that, that he has supported women and promoted women and feels like a feminist. There's probably evidence that he can point to to prove that point. Yet at the same time, um, there's this other side to him that's, you know, participating in uh, exploitation possibly of women. Um, cheating, being unfaithful, and all those other things. Did you do a much research into sex addiction and compulsion for the role? Yeah, I did. The tricky thing with sex addiction, it's very similar to food addiction. 
Whereas other things that are very clear cut, like if you're addicted to cocaine or heroin or even alcohol, you can't do those things, right? Those things are going to destroy you. You you can easily live your, you know, hopefully live your life without them, right? Food and sex are things, food obviously you need to eat, but you have, if you have a food addiction, you have to find healthy ways to eat, obviously, that are not going to put you in danger, your health in danger. And with sex, you want to integrate that into your life as a healthy element. And a se sex addiction can come in many, many, many forms. But the common thread is you do stuff that you don't want to do and then feel regret over it. You feel powerless over a compulsion to do certain behavior that has an allure to you. Right. You've said that you've studied addiction your whole life. What did you mean by that? Um, I've played so many addicts. You know, and I've seen from very early on in my life how damaging addiction is. And I've lost a lot of people to it, people who have died from it. Um, and a lot of my heroes, you know, artistic heroes, because most of my heroes from when I was young were artists, uh, died of it as well. And, you know, I had a lot of curiosity about it. Always. You know, you have a lot of screen time in The White Lotus where you don't actually have lines, but you're really good at showing just how stricken with shame your character is. Can you talk about those sort of nonverbal moments on camera? Mm. Well, those are really fun to play as an actor. And um, working with Mike White, who allows you to have those moments, uh, is really I'm very grateful for uh, because there are moments when you're dealing with just raw expression of emotion rather than verbally telling the story or verbally expressing how you're feeling I mean which can also be very moving and effective but when there's no words you really have to rely on connecting to the emotion as for, as real as you can and um you don't have to be literal. You can use anything. I always say, nothing is sacred to me. In my imagination, if I have to use something really horrific or really inappropriate or something, that I would never share with anyone, tell them this is what I'm thinking about. But if it's going to create the right thing, the right emotion for that scene, I'll, I'll use it. And then I'll just put it away. You know, once, once I use it, it's done. I don't even think about it ever again. You're able to remove that from your mind? Yeah, and I'll never, you know, I don't go back over it. And it's not something that I carry after, you know what I mean? Michael, let's take a short break here. If you're just joining us, our guest is Michael Imperioli, who stars in the second season of the HBO show The White Lotus. More after a break. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Today we're talking with actor, writer, and musician Michael Imperioli. He stars in the HBO show The White Lotus as a sex-addicted Hollywood producer on vacation in Sicily with his father and son. He also published an oral history of The Sopranos last year, and his first novel, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, is being reprinted next month. And he's got a band called Zopa that's releasing new music. You said in the book that uh, you based Christopher Maltesanti on someone you actually knew, that you don't say who it is and the person doesn't know and... You'll never say who that is. But I was just wondering, what was it about this person that influenced the character? Well, there were some, there were some very literal things that the parallels, like being from kind of uh, not New Jersey, but 
um, a similar kind of New York adjacent, you know, kind of place. Addictive things and brushes with the mob. He wasn't a mobster, but there were he had some brushes with them. Uh, but particularly, what it was was this person who I knew when I was a lot younger was very hyperbolic in his expression of emotions to the point where sometimes I wasn't sure if he was acting or not. He was very big that way, you know what I mean? Like when he, especially when he felt he was being slighted or in, you know, expressing injustice, feeling that kind of thing, which Christopher always felt like he yeah. was unappreciated and yeah. being slighted and being kind of looked over. And, but he would express it so in such a huge way totally uncensored um, that I, I would always be like, it, it, it almost looked like a performance and which is a little bit risky to do as an actor because you don't want it to seem like a performance. Right. right. You want it Someone to might say real, you're being over the top or something, right? Of course, which he was, yeah. but that, that was who he, that's who the character was. You know, when you were working on the show, did do you ever hear from someone who said they were part of the mafia and either criticized or praised like how the show was portraying the mob? You know, I met a couple of people who said they did what I did, but for real, which means that they probably didn't. Because anybody who really was in that life is not going to say it. I was introduced to someone by Tony Sirico, who played Paulie Walnuts on the show, um, with the knowledge that he was a captain in, I think, the Genovese family, someone Tony knew for a long time. And he, uh, he said he could give me the real, <laughs> he could show me the real way <laughs> yeah. to uh, strangle somebody with a whatever, piano wire, Jeez. however they did it back then. Uh, he was kind of joking, but probably kind of not. Um, he he's gone too, so um, the, the, the mob guy who told me that, I, I wouldn't say his name anyway, but he's, um, he had passed away. But, uh, you know, Jim got a call in the middle of the night, maybe after season three or something like that, an anonymous call, unknown number. And Jim answers like, hello. And the guy's like, hello. And Jim's like, yeah. The guy says, look, we like what, you, what you're doing. You're doing a good job, but you got to know one thing. A Don never wears shorts. <laughs> Click. And then the guy hung up, and Jim never found out uh, who he was or how he got his number or anything like that. I mean, that's funny, but it's also kind of scary. Yeah. I, you know, f from what we've heard, you know, through the grapevine, is that for the most part, they, they enjoyed the show. Um, you know, they probably can see the places where it's, you know, it's a, it's a piece of entertainment, so you're going to lean into things that are interesting and fun and exciting and stuff. But, um, and I think most of the real guys know that. You started writing episodes of The Sopranos while you were on the show, and I wanted to first just start with the scene. Um, this is a very funny scene from an episode you wrote called From Where to Eternity, and uh, this is when you're recovering from being shot. You were actually considered dead for a moment, and you go to hell, or you think you go to hell, something happens, and I guess hell takes place in an Irish pub where it's St. Patrick's Day every day, and you see your father there, and you, when you come back, you tell Tony and Polly Walnuts about this, which totally spooks Polly Walnuts because he's worried he's gonna go to hell. Um, and so I wanted to play the scene where 
Polly, well, you're in the hospital, you're actually sleeping, but he wakes you up because he wants to uh, assuage his fears about hell. And Polly's played by Tony Sirico, so let's hear that. Did anybody there have horns or buds for horns? Those goat bumps? Polly, it was hell, okay? My father said he loses every hand of cards he plays. And every night at midnight, they whack him the same way he was whacked in life. And it's painful, night after night. Does that sound like heaven to you? Was it hot? Yeah, I don't know. The heat would have been the first thing you noticed. Hell is hot. That's never been disputed by anybody. You didn't go to hell. You went to purgatory, my friend. I forgot all about purgatory. Purgatory. A little detour on our way to paradise. How long do you think we got to stay there? Now, that's different for everybody. You add up all your mortal sins and multiply that number by 50. Then you add up all your venial sins and multiply that by 25. You add them together, and that's your sentence. I figure I'm going to have to do about 6,000 years before I get accepted into heaven. And 6,000 years is nothing in eternity times. I could do that standing on my head. It's like a couple of days here. That's a really funny scene uh, that my guest Michael Imperioli wrote. I love how Polly is sort of like comparing doing time in purgatory is like doing time in prison. You know, you've said that you don't know how to act in a funny way, but you certainly know how to write a funny scene. Yeah, well, Paulie Walnuts was such a funny character, uh, as was Tony Sirico. Um, very superstitious, paranoid, hypochondriac, narcissistic. This is the person, not the act, not the role, right? This kind is, of both. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of both. <laughs> kind of both. They were. Yeah, Tony had a lot of those traits as well. God bless him. Uh, I miss him a lot. He died last he year, was, right? He died a few months ago, yeah, in, in July. Yeah, he was a wonderful guy. Um, I was just thinking about, because all these guys are Catholic, right? I mean, they literally burn a picture of a saint when they're doing their... Right, when know, they're being made. Induction ceremony, yeah, being made. And, and I was just thinking, well, what are these, you know, do they think at all about what they're doing? You know, how do they justify it, compartmentalize it? What's that all about? What's the relationship? Is there a relationship? And it took a while for The Sopranos to get any traction in Italy. It was very popular in a lot of countries... Uh, a lot of European countries before it got popular in Italy, and, and it, it is popular now. And the reason was the idea of a mobster going to therapy to Italians just didn't make any sense at all. Because they're just like, he, well, he's a mafioso. Why is he, you know, why in the world would he go to therapy? Uh, there's no... It's just a very different way of looking at it. But eventually, I think they started watching or, you know, and uh, a lot of people in Italy really like it. You know, in your book, you said that Tony Sirico used to identify very closely with the character Polly and that he was like protective of how Polly was written. How did that work out? <laughs> he was really protective. Um, there was a line written, it was an episode early on Actress Karen Silas played a madam who was friends with Macasian, the crooked cop played by John Hurd. Uh, and 
John Hurd's character kills himself. McKazian kills himself, and then Tony goes to see his, you know, this madam who was a friend of, you know, McKazian, and they're talking about Polly Walnuts, and she, and uh, she said, you know, um, McKazian always liked you, Tony. He didn't like Polly. He thought Polly was a bully. Well, Tony read this in the script and was infuriated, and went to the writers and said, "This, this is wrong. Polly is not a bully, and I'm I'm not saying this line." Because Paulie, he's not a bully. And you got to change that line. And they never changed anything on The Sopranos. You couldn't improv. You couldn't change a comma. And the writers, they, for some reason, they took this into consideration and, and went back to him and said, well, what if we change it to, uh, he thought Paulie was a psycho. And, and Tony went, I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> and he would do his own hair, right? He would swoop up his the gray part of his hair and do those wings. Yeah. You know. Well, he would, you know, when you do a TV show, you come to work in the morning, you go to the hair and makeup trailer, and the, the team does your hair and cuts it if it's needed and styles it and stuff. And he came to work. He didn't even go in the makeup trailer because his hair was already done. He did it at home. He had some kind of mysterious process that he woke up very early in the morning for and air dried it uh, with tons of tons of hairspray <laughs> and I guess styling product and had it dyed by this you know his barber that those wings the white wings in his hair were that was you know he would get that done before the season started you know and maintain it himself it was that an was iconic look yeah Polly has a different last name but he's called Polly Walnuts do you know why that's his nickname um there were a couple of theories. One was that he's a hard nut to crack, which I never put much into that theory. And then one was he was supposed to hijack a truck full of television sets, and it turned out to be a truck full of walnuts, <laughs> which was not as lucrative. And it turned yeah. him, you know, and earned him the nickname Paulie Walnuts Forever. That's great. So, you know, you wrote your first novel. It came out in 2017. It's called The Perfume Burned His Eyes. It's a new edition of it coming out this month, and it's a coming-of-age story that takes place in 1976 Manhattan. A 16-year-old boy named Matt moves from Queens with his mom to an apartment building in Manhattan, and upstairs from him lives Lou Reed and his lover Rachel Humphreys, a trans woman who was like Reed's muse through the, the mid-'70s. If you've heard Coney Island Baby, you know that he shouts out to her at the end of that. Um, so how did you come up with the idea of writing Lou Reed? It seems like he was a big influence on you. Yeah. I had attempts at writing fiction before, both short stories and, and longer form, I guess, novels, many times for many years and never got anywhere with it. But I wanted to write a coming-of-age story because in 2013 my middle child was 16 and was going through, you know, usual difficult 16-year-old problems, and I wanted to find a way to relate to that. So I started writing this coming-of-age story about this kid who moves, his mother inherits some money, and they move from blue-collar working-class neighborhood in Queens to a rather posh East Midtown, you know, doorman building, you know. Uh, a distance that's, you know, I don't know, two miles maybe as the crow flies, but very, very different, um, different lifestyles, you know, different types of a totally different kind of world for this kid. Um, and about three months into writing it, Lou died. Lou Reed died, which hit me 
on a bunch of levels as as a fan, which I was for many years as a, as an artist, because he was someone who really I looked up to and influenced me a lot. Uh, as a New Yorker, because he was such an iconic one, and 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 as a friend, because we had gotten to know each other in the last like dozen years of his life, and somehow I got this this you know part, I was out of kind of grieving his death, which was was hard, to be honest. Um, I got this idea of putting him in the story, and particularly that time, the story was already set in the 70s, uh, 77, and, you know, at that time he was living with Rachel Humphreys in, in this building on the east side, and somehow those things came together and gave life to this story. Yeah, you have Lou Reed working on two songs in your novel. One is Street Hustle, which is, like, one of my favorite songs from anyone. It's a beautiful and dark Me song too. about love and... And death and loss. And I think people think that that's inspired by his breakup with Rachel. Um, oh, then, it definitely is. Yeah. yeah. But then the other song that you have him working on is The Blue Mask, which is a really different song. Like it's full of this violent imagery and, and like sadomasochism. I've never really gotten an understanding of what that song's about, but it's definitely about suffering. Like why did you choose to write about that song? Well, I love that song. It's a song that I really love. One of my favorite guitar players of all time is on that song, Robert Quine, who played with Lou for a number of years. And the night... Well, I had met Lou before he knew... We, we had encounters before he knew who I was. Like, But when we finally kind of got introduced uh, at a concert in around 2001... Um, and he invited me backstage and, and, and we, we became friends. But that night he played The Blue Mask, which he didn't always play at that time, I think, in the repertoire. And it just blew my mind and made me love that song even more. And, you know, I just thought lyrically it just worked for the, where the kid was, you know, because he's experiencing a certain amount of darkness in his world and violence and um, trying to make sense of it and, you know, just trying to survive it. And uh, that song, I think, both terrifies him and inspires him in a way. In the, the last section of the book, it seems like it could be written from your character's point of view or from just from you. It's contemplating Lou Reed after he's died and you say something like, I mourn for the loss of you. I also mourn for the loss of my younger self. I mourn for the the way the city was where I lived. Is that is that you coming across on the page? Sure, absolutely. I mean, it, the book is not factual or autobiographical. Sure. You know, some people who knew Lou thought that I knew him then, and that was my story. You know, which I took as a compliment if they knew him and kind of felt that there was some, you know accuracy to the storytelling there, which is cool. But um, well, you're not old yeah, enough to emotional. be 16 and 76, right? No, I was 11 in 77. No, but emotionally, I was very young when I kind of got to the city mm -hmm. and, you know, started experiencing a very different world, you know. And um, some of that was very dark, I'll be honest with you. And some of it was fantastic. And much of it was strange and new, you know, so uh, I understand that. 
aspect of the story and what the kid's going through. Um, finally, I just have to ask you about what sounds like a slightly odd imperioli family tradition. Um, on Christmas Eve every year, you would watch Midnight Cowboy with your father and your brother. Um, <laughs> for, for anyone who doesn't know that movie, it's a very gritty and bleak depiction of New York uh, 60s hustlers. It's not a movie that screams Christmas Eve. No, and I, you know, I did a movie with John Voight once, who I, I mean, who I think is just one of the one of the best that's ever done that's ever done movies. He's just awesome. And I told him that, and he said, "Wow, that's very sweet. It's a little <laughs> sick, but it's very sweet." Yeah. Well, I guess that's what family traditions are like sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that says a lot about our family, doesn't it? I mean, so it's like as bad as Christmas can be, you know, so you might have a really bad Christmas that year, but it's not going to be as bad as, you know, what these characters are going through in Midnight Cowboy. So in that way, it's very positive and uplifting, you know. It sets the bar low for your expectations of Christmas. sets the bar low for Christmas. There you go. Well, Michael Imperioli, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It was a fun conversation. Michael Imperioli stars in the new season of the HBO series, The White Lotus. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Brigger. 